0: I was there in May, and the Starbucks in the basement of our office in Beijing was hopping.
1: Welcome back to the Bloomberg Benchmark Podcast. I'm your host, Tori Soell of Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to our first episode, and we just couldn't wait to get out another one, so we have a bonus show for you guys today. I am joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, Dan Moss, also in D.C., and Aki Ito in San Francisco. Hey, guys.
0: Great to be hey back guys. again.
1: Aki, what's the weather like in San Francisco? It's like boiling it here.
2: foggy and cold the way a good San Francisco summer should be like.
0: <laughs> in case you missed us last week, Benchmark is a podcast about the global economy, its twists, its turns, its ups and its downs, and how it affects you. We break down the most interesting numbers and ideas from around the world, share them with you in a way that hopefully will be understandable, and lo and behold, fun.
2: So, last week, we talked about productivity, and we were talking about um, what we could potentially talk about this week. A lot has happened over the past week, but nothing has kept us up at night the way China has. Um, so, this week, we're going to be talking about China. Some quick context here, uh, the Shanghai Main Stock Index is down 39% since it hit its peak in June, 39%. And uh, when China sneezes, everyone catches a cold. So um, emerging market stock markets have lost $2 trillion collectively just over the course of August. So, you know, this is a pretty big meltdown. Today we're going to be talking about this and what it means for the rest of us.
1: And we're also going to talk a little bit about China's economy. You know, how, how would you guys describe what China's economy is like?
0: Socialism with Chinese characteristics was the way Deng described it. But i got to tell you, I was there in May, and the Starbucks in the basement of our office in Beijing was hopping, absolutely hopping. And you know what else? Grande Pike cost about the same as it cost me across the street this morning.
1: So it seems like there's a decent amount of private enterprise going on there now, um, but also the government still has a ton of control. Sure. To shed some more light on all these things, we've got Kenneth Lieberthal from the Brookings Institution here to help us. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. A
3: pleasure to be here.
1: Aki, okay, those numbers were crazy, and clearly investors are semi-panicking. So it's kind of weird because we always think of China, or we've historically thought of China as this place where you know growth is Is nuts, it's off the charts, they're stealing US jobs, they're doing all this stuff. What's changed and what's happening now?
3: Well, first of all, I'd encourage you not to attach too much importance to the fall off in China's stock market. Uh, That stock market went up by 150% over the last 18 months. So the fall off of 39% or so still has most investors way ahead of the game, number one. Uh, but number two, it clearly was a bubble. It had to burst and it burst and it still has a ways to go probably before you hit a real market determined, uh, you know, equilibrium rate there. The good news is that the stock market has very little to do with the real economy in China. While the stock market was going up 150%, the real economy was slowing dramatically. You know, the China stock market is not like the U.S. market or the markets in Japan or Europe. The thing to focus on, really, is what is going on in the management of China's economy, how accurate are the numbers there, what do we know about it, and what are the implications of that for us? And uh, I think there are now a lot of worries about the quality of management of the economy, about uh, the accuracy of the numbers coming out of China. And since China is the second largest economy in the world and the largest trading partner of more than half the countries in the world, if I'm not mistaken. What happens in its real economy is of great significance, and we'd be happy to explore that as you you want to get into it.
0: Many people probably aren't used to seeing the words slowdown and China next to each other. Yet, if you look under the hood, it's been a couple of years since they clocked 10%. But even so, 7%, that's the official target.
3: So many countries would kill for that. You bet they would. But,
1: uh, <laughs> I think we would kill for that. <laughs>
3: look, uh, China for years grew at 10% on average, real growth of GDP per year. Absolutely astonishing, especially when you consider there are almost 1.4 billion people there. But a lot of that growth was a combination of smart economic management, but also uh, the uh Having rapid growth by bringing people in from the countryside to the cities, getting inserted into the global supply chain so that you take high-value-added products from Japan, from South Korea, from the U.S. and elsewhere, and assemble them in China, and then sell them, then export them out of China, and you build infrastructure to make all that quite efficient. So that's not technologically innovative growth is not very high-quality growth. It's
1: like catching up, sort it, of.
3: It's really catching up, and it's following a model that a number of East Asian countries have followed before. And they ran with that model. They ran very effectively with us. They deserve a lot of credit for it. But they've exhausted that model. Uh, that model assumed that China could keep pumping out exports, increasing the exports at a substantial rate every year. But then the global economy has slowed, uh, Protectionist sentiment in a lot of places has increased, and there's no way that China can grow by simply pumping out exports in larger and larger larger volumes. Secondly, it counted on a huge labor surplus. You, know, you look at the uh, age distribution of the Chinese population, and from the time they started this growth spurt until 2013, they had more people of working age than they had people either too young or too old to work than is typical of countries at that stage of development. So they had a lot of cheap labor coming in, and they could afford to pay them little, give them very few benefits, work them very hard and make a lot of money off of it. That is more or
0: less the model they had since Dung began the opening in 78. So it's been going for three decades, yet I have the impression that certainly in the minds of most Americans and most Westerners, That's all they still think China
3: is. Yeah, and it isn't. That's the point. It takes a while for a changing reality to kind of catch up and how people think about things. China actually is now entering a period where its working age population is shrinking. In absolute terms, it's shrinking.
1: Does that have anything to do with their one-child policy? Yeah,
3: it's it's a kind of result of their one-child policy, which began back in the early 1980s when this big growth spurt began. And... uh, They still don't have a lot of kids too young to work. What they're going to get a huge increase of uh, is people too old to work, and those are very expensive people. And they went on a huge infrastructure binge, which made a lot of sense, but they've now basically built out the infrastructure that has high payoff. And so if you want to keep investing in infrastructure, you're going to be investing in things, you know, it's the proverbial bridge to nowhere. And the bridge is still as expensive as a bridge in the middle of New York. But you aren't making money from it. And so this combination of things has forced them to look at how to transition to a, to an innovative economy, to an economy that's creating new technology, that's competing at the high end of the international, you know, economic profiles you see and have Uh, the low-end assembly operations and that kind of thing moved to places like Vietnam and Bangladesh and India, Pakistan, etc. It's interesting you should say that. I mean, last weekend I
0: did back-to-school shopping for my son, and I bought him some clothes. I probably shouldn't name the outlets I went to, but it's the sort of thing you can imagine. And just out of curiosity, when I got home, I looked at the tags to see where all these things were made, not a one of them, and I went to three name-brand outlets not a one of them, was made in China. It's Vietnam, Pakistan, and Indonesia. Yet, I'm sure if I was doing that 10 years ago, they all would have been made in China. And how did this happen yet somehow not permeate the popular consciousness here?
3: uh, Many of the producers in these other countries now are actually Chinese businesses that have moved their business out of China to lower-cost places to produce. So they're doing a Shenzhen elsewhere. Exactly. I mean, wow. not on the scale of Shenzhen, but right. that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of capital coming out of China, especially initially in things like textiles, because you, you know there's such a small margin in that, you, and it's so labor-intensive, you go where the inexpensive labor and basic infrastructure is, and that's, for example, Vietnam. Uh, so China is trying to shift. The problem is it's a very hard shift to do without some significant disruptions.
2: So you know we have this great team here at Bloomberg and they regularly survey economists around the world and ask them you know how fast is each country going to grow over the next year over the next two years three years and right now the expectation is for China to grow uh, 6.9% this year um so like we said this is way slower than the 10% average over over the past few decades is really that bad and earlier you mentioned that you know some people don't really trust the numbers that are coming from the Chinese government anymore you know I've read some reports that maybe growth is closer to 6% like what does that really what does that look like if you're you know a normal person in China?
3: Talking to normal people in China is a mixed bag people are worried about the economy their unemployment figures are very low quality for a variety of technical reasons they're not very accurate. I think a key thing here is that the statistical system in China that we all rely on is really quite good at measuring uh, capital investment, at measuring output of industrial firms, uh, those kinds of things. The old economy, if you will,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, is quite poor at measuring things like service sector businesses uh, and consumption Those figures are collected less frequently, and they're usually subject to large adjustments. The system just was geared to what the Chinese were most concerned about over the last three decades. They're now trying to shrink the relative portions of investment uh, of exports and manufacturing in their economy. And they're trying to grow the service sector and especially household consumption as a demand driver, since exports can no longer do the trick. Part of the problem with that is their own numbers are not high quality.
1: Yeah, I know and I know people don't really trust the numbers out of well, well, China, you know, depending we, on who you talk to. So I'm just kind of curious why that is. We well, have
3: there are
0: conspiracy had, theories about numbers here as well, of course. That's but true. It, it sounds like you're
3: saying there's a little more to it than that. Uh, I think there is a little more to it. I don't think the government is lying. Uh, I think the government's reporting the best it's got. The problem is the growth sectors of the economy are the ones where their numbers aren't as good. And the sectors that are ratcheting down are the ones that their numbers are come out every month, and they're actually pretty good. And we know how to do adjustments and that kind of thing. So it's a problem in figuring out what's really going on. It appears that while manufacturing is clearly in the dumps, the reality is, it seems, that wages actually are continuing to go up. Sure. while the housing market is way off from where it was. Real estate development, uh, especially of, of residential real estate, is way off. And that was a huge driver in the Chinese economy. Uh, so there's just a lot that is shifting around in China. It's very hard to get your arms around it.
1: So Aki and I are primarily U.S. focused reporters. You know, I'm curious uh, on your thoughts. We can't really just tune out China, even though we mostly focus on what's going on here in America, um, it's not like we can just block out China, especially not with markets doing what they're doing. So for someone who doesn't cover economics, why should the average American care about what's going on in China beyond what it's doing to their stock portfolios?
3: Uh, We do roughly $600 billion of trade a year with China. So relative prices of goods, relative competitiveness, and that kind of thing matter a lot. Secondly, the Chinese are now very rapidly increasing their direct investment in the United States. They're building factories. They're investing in the energy sector. They're doing a lot of things. Uh, if you live in San Francisco Aki, uh, or, pay or, attention. or or in New uh-huh. York, uh, the Chinese are driving up your the real estate values by a lot, especially at the yeah, end of the Yeah, absolutely. If you're, for example, in the American automotive sector, and you look at, let me take GM as an example, Uh, GM early on got into China for, I think, uh, the better part of a decade, maybe even a little longer than that, China has been the biggest profit center in the world for GM. While North America has lost money every year, China has been a huge profit center. Now, vehicle sales in China are slowing, and in some cases, actually, the market's actually going down. If you're paying GM retired workers pensions, it's money from China in a real sense that is making that more affordable. So given all of that, let me just ask you to step back
0: in time and we should mention to our listeners that you were the China guy at the National Security Council uh, during the Clinton administration. China's economy is so much bigger now than it was then. What would happen now? I mean, you're asleep in bed, you get a call from one of your aides, they've just reset the reference rate for the yuan, or they're doing this with the stock market, and there's been a shift in this, and the premier has just said X. What happens? Do you get the call, say, come and brief the president at seven o'clock, and he? Or in the future, maybe she says, Ken, what the heck is going on? I thought we had this figured out. I thought it was the second biggest economy in the world on the way to be the biggest. I thought they had it all figured out. What goes through the minds of policymakers during a period like this where the U.S. does have so much at stake?
3: It's a very good question. It's very important when you get that kind of call that you have very clearly in your mind what really matters short-term and long-term to the U.S. and what is just one of these things that's a blip. The stock market in China, in terms of its economic impact on the U.S., is frankly a blip. And you want to say that. You want to say, you know, the stock market doesn't tell you much about what's going on in China. And as you all know better than I do, Markets act on sentiment very often as much as they act on hard numbers and deep analysis, you know. And what we've seen is a classic example of that, where people were worried about China. They're worried about emerging markets overall, don't quite know what's going on. And suddenly, it looks like a bubble has burst in China and Chinese are losing their shirts in the market. And so markets everywhere react dramatically. You want to be able to say to the president and to the national security advisor and the national economic advisor and so forth, that's not what's going on. You see this sentiment, but the real economic significance of it is small. What what I would be more concerned about is not, for example, the stock market went down, but what the Chinese leadership did when they saw it going down, because they then intervened in almost startling fashion. I would say that the really big problem is here, a lot of people are going to feel that the reforms that Xi Jinping, the Chinese leaders, has put right up on the wall and said, this is where we're headed, it didn't take much to knock him back a good peg and resort to very non-market approaches and do it, frankly, at the wrong time so they were bound to fail. He didn't wait till the market was near its nader, and then try to provide confidence and move it up. It was still in the middle of a fall. So they expended something like $200 billion. In addition to all kinds of other interventions, they put out roughly $200 billion to stabilize that market. And then the market fell. So Aki, you know, when Ken was talking earlier
0: about demographics and a shrinking labor market, did that make
3: you wonder about your own homeland?
2: Yeah, I was about to say this sounds a lot like Japan.
3: Well, it in a sense, resonates with Japan. China's age distribution by, I believe, 2030 will be roughly what Japan's is now. And as you know, Japan is a very old society uh, in terms of age distribution. The big difference is China doesn't have nearly now or prospectively, even by 2030, the per capita wealth that Japan has. Mm. Uh, what it has had, and we don't know the future on this, what it has had is very dynamic economic decision-making. You know, I used to say, and it was true, experience uh, uh, supported this, that one of the things you could admire about the Chinese leadership, regardless of what you think about the nature of their system, is they did not duck problems coming up. When you mm-hmm. talk to them, they talked about the future. And let me tell you, if you pointed out problems, you don't understand how big those problems are. And here are some other things. And let me tell you what we're going to do about them. You know, and we'll experiment with it, but fundamentally we gotta move in this direction. And they would do it. You look over the ensuing few years, and they do it even more than you thought. Uh, big question, and, and for Japan, that has not been the case, you know, Most sincerely definitely 90s, not. Yeah. And, uh, and the question is whether China is going to get tripped up as it goes forward. And frankly, no one knows the future. It would be nice if we did, but no one does. But these last few, weeks have, uh, I think, raised more doubts and more concerns abroad, and I suspect in China too, than we are accustomed to with China. And that's not a good thing. So we used
0: to worry about Japan, and then Aki, when Japan's big growth spurt finished and we thought it was just a temporary thing and the country, would get back on its feet and go back to what it was doing in the late 80s and the early 90s. That didn't happen. But that was okay for the world economy because China came online and its economy began growing and growing and growing,
3: and growing. do we need a new china well it frankly is too soon to tell what's going to happen to China they may pick up where they aren't going to get to ten percent again but they can sustain five to seven percent for the next fifteen years on on average and transition to higher quality growth less environmental impact and all that uh, that'll be a That'll be a huge contribution to global economic growth. The next big comer, possibly, will be India. The, it's not there already? No. Their per capita GDP is minuscule compared to China's. Their infrastructure is almost non-existent compared to China's. So you know, India is not there by a very long shot. And therefore, you have this huge growth potential in India. It's
0: really great you could be with us today. And we loved your insights. It's great to hear from someone who has studied China both academically and has been involved at the nexus of U.S. policymaking on it.
1: Well, all right, that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal as well as Bloomberg.com. We are also on iTunes where if you visit, please give us a rating so more listeners can find us.
2: And let us know what you thought of the show. We love feedback here. Um, you can talk to us and follow us on Twitter at AkiIto7, at Tori Stowell with one L in the middle, and at Dan Moss DC.
0: Thanks again. And Tori, for goodness sake, next week. There will put be up, pizza. Put up on the pizza, <laughs> More okay? More pizza. Maybe put up, some beer. Or you know what <laughs> comes covering it. <laughs>